Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard. In every episode, we're going to be turning back the clock and looking at some of the worst murder cases in history. In this episode, it's the grinder killer, Stephen Paul. First, Danny, how are you? What have you been up to? Um, I'm okay. Have I been up to anything? I can't say that I have. You've been decluttering your house. Well, you've been decluttering my oh, house. Yes. I've been decluttering. My house. <laughs> you've been getting your house ready to move house, haven't you? Yes, but now we have started decluttering. I am a hoarder. Mm-hmm, she is. Yep, and that's an actual thing. Now that we're you know, I can see the house, mm-hmm. all parts of the house that you have cleaned for me. Um, I like it. <laughs> no, you don't want to move. I don't know if I want to move. I definitely do want to move. There's a few things that my house doesn't have that I would really like to have in a house. But um, one big one of them things is me, me being round the corner from it. Oh, yes. Not a driveway. Not a driveway. <laughs> Because <laughs> I could use your driveway. Helen. Yes. <laughs> Helen keeps trying to get me to move next door. Yes, I do. Which I'm not actually not opposed to. Save us a lot of time, wouldn't it? Yeah, defo. And uh, we'd still ring each other like six times a day. Yeah. Then, so. <laughs> <laughs> and we, But we'd also get walkie-talkies. Yeah, I think that would be... I'd, I'd actually love that. Yeah. <laughs> Echo Charlie, Helen. And that would be it. I always wanted a set of uh, walkie-talkies from um, the Argos catalogue. Back in the day, that corner would always be folded. I uh, used to know the Argos catalogue so well that if my mum needed to buy something for the house, oh, we need to get a new iron board. I'd be like, right, give me the Argos catalogue. Through the pages, take it right there. There you go. <laughs> right on that page. The small electricals, mum. Yeah. <laughs> page 106. I knew it. Do you remember the days when that actually used to be a pastime, just looking through the Argos catalogue? Exactly. That's why I knew it so well, because it was like, didn't read, did I? Just looked at the Argos Argos catalogue. I used to stand on it and pretend to kiss boys at the (laughs) yellow pages. (laughs) Um, What were you kissing? The air. Just the air? Yeah. You weren't like the back, not the back of your hand or like a teddy or something? Sometimes I'd snog a mirror and... (laughs) So, unlike our previous episodes, this horrific case happened very recently, 2015. Oh, wow, that is very recent. It is very recent. Um, So, it's going to be a bit of a tough one. So, if you're not feeling like you can hear this, please do take a breather or listen to another of our episodes. Okay, here we go. So, it's a Saturday night, September in East London, and Jack Taylor is out at the Trades Hall Club in Dagenham. He's been talking to a guy on Grindr, and Grindr is a social networking site. It's a dating site. After a few messages, they agree to meet up, which is pretty standard, I'd say, way of meeting people in this day and age. In the early hours of the morning, Jack calls a taxi and heads over to the man's flat in Barking. Jack lives with his family, so they notice when he doesn't come home. We know that Jack hadn't come home, so we was all worried We'd always hear from Jack. He'd always let my mum and dad know if he wasn't coming home or... And he hadn't. So this was unusual for Jack to not let his family know that he wasn't coming home. So naturally they get very, very worried. And so they report him missing. Then just two days later, which probably felt like forever for them, they hear the news that they have been dreading. 
Jack's body was discovered in the graveyard of St Margaret's Church in East London, propped up against a wall. Near the body, they find drug paraphernalia, including a small bottle containing the party drug, GHB. Police rule the death as not suspicious, as from what they can see, it was an overdose. However, Jack's family is suspicious, as again, this is very unusual behaviour for Jack. Jack was very anti-drugs, so that didn't make sense. You just get this gut feeling that something's not right. And they weren't wrong. An active serial killer was on the loose. Using dating apps to lure men and lead them to their death, it's a thing of nightmares in this day and age. Young men in their 20s had been murdered in East London and their bodies had been found in unexplained circumstances, all within a few hundred yards of each other. So back to where it started. Stephen Port was born in Southend, England in 1975. When he was one, his family moved to Dagenham in East Essex and he, he was an introverted boy who found it hard to make friends, as criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley explains. He seems to have come from quite an average working-class background, which was, to all intents and purposes, relatively normal from the outside. He seems to be a boy who was quite quiet. He was quite awkward. Um, he wasn't somebody who was a great conversationalist. It's quite a common theme in our previous podcasting episodes, isn't it? Mm. Quiet ones. Always the quiet ones. Always the quiet ones. Maybe that's why that is a saying. Yeah. OK, let's find out. When leaving secondary school, Stephen went to art college, but his family couldn't afford the fees, so he had to drop out, which is a bit of a shame. He had to basically choose something else, so he went on and, and trained to be a chef. So I think he's always got that sense of frustration and that sense of entitlement. Um, I think he, he has this idea that I have this talent, I have this skill, I should be able to develop that, and I'm not able to because of other people. So I think that stays with him for quite a long time. When he was 30, he moved out of his family home and he moved into his own flat in nearby Barking in East London. One of his neighbours was a guy called Ryan Edwards. I first met Stephen when I moved to Barking um, in April 2005 um, and uh, I lived in a, a first floor flat and it overlooked where I would discover Stephen lived. Uh, and as a young gay man myself, I didn't know anyone gay in the, in the local area. So it didn't take me long, really, to introduce myself to him. He, he was a very tall man, sort of a towering physical presence, um, and he actually walked with a, almost like a bit of a lumber stroke lurch. He was very much a man of few words, so when he used to talk to me, he often didn't give eye contact. He would bow his head, and he would often give one or two word answers. Ryan quickly noticed his new neighbour's strange behaviour. I think there was something stunted about Stephen's mental development. I remember something a bit peculiar. I was um, going to host a party. I was just putting some rubbish out and there was a toy truck there. And I thought, Stephen will love that. Um, and I was with a friend at the time. I said, you can't give a grown man a toy truck. And I was like, yeah, but I, you know, from what I knew of Stephen, I think he'd really like it. Um, so at the party, I gave him the toy truck. And lo and behold, he was absolutely overjoyed with it. He then sat cross-legged on the floor and started pushing the toy truck up and down. He was obviously in his complete own world while the party was going on around him. Slightly unusual behaviour. Unusual behaviour, mm -hmm. yeah. But as someone that, from a young age, that was quite introverted, found conversation difficult and struggling possibly to have basic social skills, 
Stephen's awkwardness made it difficult for him to meet people. And by people, I mean partners. So um, author Jeffrey Wansell says that he turned to online dating where he felt a bit more comfortable. This was his form of communication. He wasn't a man, for example, to go out to the pub or to the bar at night. This was a man who lived in his own fantasy, created with the help of his internet connection. And that is the scary thing about the internet, isn't it? And kind of rule 101 when it comes to trusting people, be aware of potential catfish, sort of exposing yourself to anyone, aren't you? And I suppose anyone can be anyone that they want to be online. It puts you in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why they teach young kids these days is be careful who you talk to because you could be talking to literally anyone. You could upload any picture as your profile picture on Facebook, Instagram. And as long as you're acting in a sort of manner that suits that picture, you could be believable to anybody. Have you had any experience with that? No. And so... I almost feel like I can't relate to the modern world in it. But like when I met my husband, I only just had a phone with the internet. Mm -hmm. Like internet dating was still like, it wasn't apps. Apps didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it was, yeah, it was, well, there was like plenty of fish and um, also eHarmony and stuff like that. Actual proper websites. It wasn't a way you still had to, really develop if if you were going to catfish somebody you really had to develop a quite a intense backstory because it was you know a full-on profile whereas um i think with the apps uh it's so where it's just swipeable it's all just pictures in it Mm -hmm. mostly so no i've never i've never experienced anything like that and i'm quite grateful in a sense because i know i'm very naive um and i yeah, I don't, I think I could easily get crushed by by those apps. Um, although I do have a friend who said she's glad I wasn't on the dating apps because I would destroy the community. <laughs> I would destroy the dating pool in Norwich. And I thought, I think that's a really nice compliment. Thank you. What do you mean by destroy? <laughs> I think like get I like through it. Think, yeah, I think she. I'd just ruin it. I'd just. I would just ruin a slew of men in my wake. Cheers. I think the only experience that I've had with stuff like that is, which I probably, a lot of people have probably experienced this, is you talk to someone on a dating site that comes across as really confident in their pictures and there's some good banter, some good conversation and they seem really outgoing and fun. But then when you actually meet them, they're so quiet, so introvert. And and then I'm like, I'm going to eat him alive. I've got to go. And they're not as fun as how they present themselves. And I suppose, you know, behind a keyboard, every, anyone could have confidence. Yeah, that's very true. I've never, I've never actually online, I've never ever online dated. I did go accidentally speed dating once. Yeah, with me. What's up with you? Yeah, remember. Not and really. And you met someone you were dating. I did. I actually dated somebody from the speed dating. Yeah. yeah. Very nice man. 17, my series, 17 years older than me. But um, very nice guy. Mm. Um, and yeah, we, we dated for a little while. We went to go and see Iron Man 2 on our first date. And uh, and then he invited me back to his flat to play Tekken. Oh, no, I invited myself back to his flat to play Tekken. Here we go. There we go. See, first I told date, you. Danny. 
<laughs> and he said no because he didn't have a second controller. <laughs> and I went home. <laughs> Gutted. Yeah, so uh, no, very limited experience. <laughs> With the social media side of things and being able to fabricate the truth, uh, Stephen created, he created lots of different accounts over various different social media platforms and he could be anyone he wanted to be. So he claimed to be in the military. He said he graduated from Oxford. He said he was a special needs teacher. Uh, And I suppose if your story was convincing enough and you could keep up the persona, you could even pass off as an astronaut if you wanted. You could be anyone. It's a lot of lying and he was clearly very good at it. Stephen's um, rate of going through and meeting new guys was prolific. So um, it was quite you know, not unusual that it would be a new guy um, every, every day. Even on the first time he'd met them, he would then uh, announce to me via text message normally that, you know, I've got a new boyfriend, come around and meet my new boyfriend. The Stephen Port that he presented to the world was somebody who looked younger than he was. He would often use pictures that were taken many years ago. He doesn't feel that the real Stephen Port is actually enough to to actually get the attention of others and and to to have others interested in him. From what I've seen, present-day Stephen wasn't the most handsome man. He was interested in younger men. So he used pictures of his younger self to be more enticing and more appealing, especially on these dating sites. So he was attracting these young men, Mm -hmm. thinking that they were talking to people their age. There's a really clear reason for that, because here we've got somebody who really has a lot of problems relating to people of his own age. So I think he's always going to be attracted towards people who look younger because he feels like he's, he's more in control. He was a kind of praying mantis figure. Quite thin, pale-faced, uncomfortable in lots of company. Much happier when he was alone with young men. He had an appetite for vulnerable young men, certainly younger than 25. And he was interested in control. It's about the power. And for Port, it was all about power. And Stephen's neighbour, Ryan, soon noticed just how controlling he was. Stephen would quite often deposit the the boyfriend in my company. And so I would end up getting to know these guys. Um, And they they really had a good word to say about Stephen. They would often say that um, he was um, mentally abusing them. He was very argumentative, very manipulative, very controlling. But what was strange really is that if Stephen was such an awful person, they were still sticking around. So again, was there some sort of control that Stephen was exhibiting to make these guys, you know, not run for the hills? So he's not a nice guy, so it's kind of intriguing why they didn't leave. Mm. Yeah, like he's obviously got in their heads. Mm. Exactly. Along with his volatile relationships, Stephen had also got involved in the world of drug-fuelled sex parties. So not an ideal neighbour, really. Poor Ryan next door remembers Stephen inviting him over one time, um, giving him a glimpse into his new wild lifestyle. 
He led me through to the kitchen uh, and the living room and uh, I was absolutely taken aback when I looked at the coffee table and the whole circumference was filled up with a clear plastic box. And in that container were lots and lots and lots of vials of clear liquid and bags of white powder. I obviously quickly realised that this is a huge amount of drugs, so then that's when I pretty much took a step back. Um, and that was one of the last times I actually went round to Stephen's flat. I think the problem is, is he's living alone in his flat and he doesn't have anyone to tell him that what he's doing is wrong. He's got no close friends and no family in the area. Um, and obviously he's like the controlling figure in the relationships that he's had. So no one would say, you know, what you're doing isn't okay. So no one is holding him accountable for his behaviour. And he would really have this cycle of one when one relationship ended, another one would start. And each time they would get gradually more violent and aggressive. So this was a downward slope of unhealthy behaviour with no consequences to the point where it hits a tipping point and the beginning of his killings. On June 15th, 2014, Stephen messaged 23-year-old fashion student Anthony Woolgate through a male escorting site. He offered to pay Anthony £800 to spend the night and Anthony agreed. They met two days later. As a precaution, Anthony texts friends about the arrangement, which was probably a sensible thing to do. We'd probably do the same. You let someone know. Yeah. Yeah, it's sensible. Here's a picture of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. But two days after, the police received an anonymous emergency call from Stephen Port himself. This is messed up. Emergency ambulance. What's the address of the emergency? Cook Street. There's a young boy who got his caps outside. Outside of which number? 4758, I think. What area? Parking. 47, Cook Street. Yeah. It looks like he's collapsed or had a seizure or something. He's just always just drunk. I mean, that's bold to call up your own murder. So when the paramedics arrived, Anthony was found slumped up against a wall outside of Stephen's flat. His own flat. His actual flat? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Wow. Found next to him was his bag, which contained a bottle of the party drug, GHB. And I just I'd had to look it up because I didn't know what it meant. I thought you were mispronounced, like, missaying GBH, like, grievous bodily harm. No. What is GHB? So, GHB is abused, I, I, this is the, I'm reading this from Google. Okay. It's, is abused by teens and young adults at bars, parties and clubs and raves. All night dance parties, it says in brackets, if you didn't know what a <laughs> rave was. Right. Um, it's often placed in alcoholic beverages. Euphoria, increased sex drive and tranquility are reported positive effects of GHB abuse. Negative effects may include sweating, loss of consciousness, nausea, hallucinations, amnesia and coma, among other side effects. Oh, wow. Okay. It's pretty 50-50, isn't it? Yeah, those, the, list of, the list of negative side effects is pretty intense there. Yeah, isn't, isn't it? it? Anthony had died of an overdose. Wallgate had turned up at his flat and there is no doubt that he was rapidly subdued with the use of GHB and other drugs. Now there is an argument which suggests that perhaps something went just a bit too far 
with as far as Wargate was concerned, and that the drugs had too great an effect. It could be that he got the dose wrong. It could be that this was something new that he was trying out. We don't know. But what we do know is that Anthony Wargate died at Port's hands. Because Stephen told the police that he found Anthony outside his flat on the on his way home, his death wasn't treated as suspicious. But as you can imagine, it was devastating news for his mother, Sarah Sack. The last time I um, had any contact with Anthony was the 15th of June, because it was my birthday on the 17th of June. And I said to him, I'm going on holiday, I'll see you when I get back, that sort of thing. And, of course, I never did get to see him again. It was the um, Sunday before I was due to come home and I turned my phone back on. There was 50-odd missed calls, there was texts, there was hundreds and hundreds of messages coming through that you need to ring home, some, you know, something's happened. So I, I called my son and he had to tell me over the phone that Anthony had been found dead. To be honest, it was just a bit of a blur. It was so fast and... I don't even really remember much about it. It was just, I was just in shock that it could happen. You know, you really don't expect this to happen. You, you go on holiday for your birthday, etc., and then find out one of your children are dead. As any grieving mum would, she asked the police for more information about her son's death because even though they weren't suspicious, she was. Anthony was found dead in the streets. I said, well, you know, was he stabbed, shot, beaten? What? No. Nothing, there was not a mark on him, and we don't know why. They'd done a post-mortem the Friday before and nothing had come up and shown. So I said to him straight away then, something's not right. Anthony's friends told detectives that he had arranged to meet up with a man on the night he disappeared. The police soon realised it was the same person who dialed 999, Stephen Port. Alarm bells. This is why you always tell people what you're doing and who you're meeting. Take screen grabs of their social media accounts, send them like, you know, one of us, well, are going on a date. Heidi, in particular, she'll say she's going on a date. And we're like, who are you going on a date with? And she'll tell us who it is. Yep. And then, where are you? How's sh- it going? Yeah, show us a picture of them. Mm-hmm. And even though it's just girls being interested in what your friend's up to and juicy goss, it also is a safety precaution. Yeah. It's an, it's an indirect safety precaution. You're just looking out for your pal. So we did the right thing in doing that. So on June 26th, Stephen was arrested, his laptop was seized and his DNA was taken. It starts to unravel and, and the police do start to put the, the pieces together and, and figure out that he is connected to this in some way. So Port's story changes, um, he, he continues to, to lie and I think he's sailing quite close to the wind with this particular case. Stephen told detectives that Anthony had taken drugs and fallen asleep after they'd had sex. He said he then left Anthony in his flat and went to work. And then when he came back later that day, Anthony was still asleep. So he left him to it. But then the following morning, he found Anthony dead. Stephen said he panicked and carried the body outside before calling the police. And astonishingly, the investigators believed him. And I think he feels 
quite relieved when he gets away with it because I, I, I think that once he was in the police station, once he was being questioned, he probably did think the game was up and I don't think he could quite believe his luck when he walked away from it. On June 26th, police charged Stephen with perverting the course of justice since his account of Anthony's death had changed. A trial date was set for March 2015, but he was immediately released on bail. Human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell was surprised. Astonishingly, they did no further serious probing of Stephen Port, including his searches on his laptop and including his phone records. Those searches might have much earlier on shone a spotlight on Stephen Port as a potential killer. He'd got away with it. And so he sees if he can get away with it again. Just two months after Anthony Walgate's death, Stephen was back on Grinder. He starts messaging 22-year-old Gabriel Covery. Shortly after, Gabriel moved in with Port. So things are moving quite quickly with them too. One day, Ryan, the next-door neighbour, kindly invites the couple over for coffees. Probably got over his uncomfortable experiences. All right, let's have him over for coffee. So um, Stephen brings him over. And then um, when Stephen goes to the toilet, um, Gabriel then says to me um, in sort of hushed tones, Ryan, Stephen is not the man you think he is. He is a bad man. And it didn't take me long to realise that Gabriel was not happy living with Stephen. Gabriel was a really nice guy. He was smart, well-spoken. He loved art. And as we know, Stephen was robbed of his opportunity of being an artist. So I don't know, maybe the art thing was the initial attraction. They both had something in common. But as Gabriel was an active artist, maybe it led to, you know, him actually feeling quite threatened and jealous of him. He was strikingly different to the guys that um, Stephen would normally hang around with. And so for that reason, I was piqued, he piqued my interest, really. And so I thought, oh, well, actually, I'm going to keep in touch with Gabriel. Um, and so we then started to swap some messages on social media. Ryan sounds like a, a pleasant man, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Look like he's looking out for Gabriel, which is why he was concerned when all of a sudden the messages stopped. And so I raised this with Stephen about, you know, why has Gabriel stopped, you know, communicating? Where is he? Um, and then Stephen told me that I'm not sure where Gabriel's gone. He's just disappeared. Um, and then it was, it changed after a few days to uh, Gabriel's um, met up and, and gone out with a, an army guy and then changed again to um, actually uh, I'm worried about Gabriel's safety. And then it was about a week after that that I, I got this really um, eerie message from Stephen, a long, long message saying, and I've got some really sad news, but I've heard from Gabriel's um, friend that he's gone back home and he picked up a mysterious illness and has died. In 2015? Yeah. A mysterious illness? Mm-hmm. Okay. Stephen's not particularly sharp and he's not a very good liar because on August 28th, 2014, just five days after he moved into Stephen's flat, Gabriel Cavari was found dead. A woman walking her dog in the graveyard of St Margaret's Church found his body propped up against a wall. There's a common theme here. It appeared that Gabriel had died of a drug overdose. Port had now killed two men, and this was only the start. Less than a month later, 
and still on bail, he killed again. On September 18th, he contacted 21-year-old chef Daniel Whitworth through another dating site, so the two met up. Two days later, Daniel was found dead. His body was discovered in the graveyard at St Margaret's Church in the same spot as Port's second victim, Gabriel, by the same dog walker. No. Yeah. It's so sad. The news of Daniel's death reached his stepmother, Mandy Pearson. I opened the door to the police, who immediately removed their hats. And that was when time stood still for me, really. I thought, they, they're not here with good news. They just are not here with good news. I really don't recall what I actually said next. I, I cried. And so then one of us asked, how? And they did lower their heads and say, well, it looks like he took his own life. She just sounds really sad. Like, that just, that's got me, that has. Yeah. It's a lot, this one, isn't it? Yeah. I think that having police come to your door and the hat coming off their head, you know what that means. And that's literally the last person that you want yeah, to like, see. Yeah, like, you're just like, what well, we've just heard, the worst yeah. moment of her life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, uh, yeah, it's just a lot. I know we hear this every week. Mm. And it's the same, it's the same, like, it's, it's just, it's a lot, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's really irritating that a person can do that because it's not just the, lo- the loss of that life is horrific, but mm. it's not just that one person, their mm. whole family, their friends, mm. the community, mm. that, that poor dog, that poor woman walking her dog. Yeah. Like everybody, it's just fucking annoying, isn't it? Stop, mm. like, stop it. Yeah, and I think like one thing that I said when started recording this podcast in particular was I was like, what makes this episode particularly sensitive is the fact that all of the victims are part of the gay community. And it just feels Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's, and also but also like I know I don't I know we're gonna find out, but I'm not being funny. How it surely it cannot be that difficult to connect yeah. these two people to this one guy. They've been found in the same place. Mm-hmm. And now I know from my criminal minds watching, they've been posed, they've been propped on the wall, they've been posed. Mm. Someone's obviously like carefully putting these people. They're not he's not just dumping them. No. How can that happen so quickly? Yeah. And where's like where's the police you know yeah. what i mean yeah like like it takes a mum always knows the mums the mums the stepmums they've and they've something's already said, not right yeah 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 you know what i mean but this is it this is the whole the, the problem is like mm. why is it that marginalized communities are last on the list to be taken seriously like this could have been prevented had they have put the dots together earlier on and it's such, it's so heartbreaking and such a shame that this is just continuing to happen and innocent young men and families are being torn apart. Yeah, it was frustrating with Vega, like they let him go and he did it mm-hmm. again. But you could, there was the, you know, it, it, it took a while for the different countries to realise that there was all these 
that they were connected. Mm-hmm. They were in different countries. They were at different times. Like, mm-hmm. and then this is there. It's the same fucking place. Yeah, it's like literally the same fucking place. Yeah, and you. But it's infuriating because what Stephen did next to try and avoid being caught was wasn't okay. So basically. He wrote and planted a fake suicide note which claimed that Daniel had killed Gabriel, his ex, just three weeks earlier. When Daniel's family saw the note, they found it very strange. Adam and I actually managed to see the letter in its entirety. There wasn't a thing in that letter that spoke to us about Daniel. Um, There were no names. Um, he was talking in the wrong kind of context. It was like, um, I didn't tell my family where I was going. Well, you wouldn't say that to your family. And at that point, I I said, "Who, who is this addressed to? Because it's not addressed to us, is it? There you go. A mother always knows. I don't know what he was thinking. I think it's quite bold to to write a fake suicide note from someone that you barely know. Because if this was going to be used as a piece of evidence, like the people that know you, your nearest and dearest, are going to know that that's not in your tone of voice. Absolutely. And there's things like handwriting analysis Mm. now. Like it's such an, it's actually quite an unoriginal lie mm. for starters but also probably not that smart in a modern and no. modern day it's not smart no it, it does says it's desperate yeah it says a lot about Stephen's sort of state of mind though as well mm. like his sort of desperation and thinking he can outsmart people when clearly he can't but there was also something else in the letter that made Mandy suspicious there was don't blame the guy I was with last night it was only sex and Obviously, the first question then was who? Who is this man? Oh, my God. He might as well have just been like, please don't blame Stephen. It definitely was not Stephen. For sake. I know. News of the death of the three young gay men began to spread through the LGBTQ plus community. And rightly so. In such a short space of time and in the same location, it's very unnerving. So a friend of Gabriel, John Pape, approached human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell. I was immediately shocked that the police had issued no public appeal and there seemed to be no ongoing investigation. Um, That prompted me to ask John Pape to contact Gallup, uh, the police monitoring group, and Pink News, the main gay website. I asked him to try and get them to press the police for answers. Um, Both Gallup and Pink News did go to the police, but were reassured that there was nothing suspicious or unusual about the deaths. Stephen had managed to avoid being arrested for the third time, but his killing spree was about to be put on a temporary hold. On March 23rd, 2015, Stephen pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice during the investigation into Anthony Walgate's death. Perhaps this was to delay investigation regarding the murders? Buy himself some time? He was sentenced to eight months in prison, but he served just over two of them, and on June 4th he was released. So he was free, and he continued 
I never really understood the circumstances at the time of why he was in prison, but I did ask him, obviously, when he got out via text message, what was that all about? You know, why, why were you in prison for, you know, for a couple of months? And um, eerily, he said to me on text message, it was a 90 second mistake, Ryan, that cost me several months of my life in prison. And I never really understood what he meant by that. But looking back, it's kind of a bit chilling. I'd, I'd have thought that if Ryan was um, in the loop with the news, especially like in the gay community, would he not be suspicious of his neighbour? Perhaps he was, but equally, when that person is living next door to you, you're probably equally part suspicious and scared. Mm. And maybe no, he didn't want to believe it. Someone, Perhaps. someone, yeah, and someone who you've already got a personal relationship with, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be your first thought to put those dots together. Mm. Just three months after being released from prison, Stephen was at it again. On September 14th, the body of 25-year-old forklift driver Jack Taylor was found in the same churchyard as Gabriel and Daniel. I think the graveyard became a kind of favourite disposal site for him because it served two purposes. It got the bodies out of the way, but it also created a bit of a narrative um, for anybody coming across these individuals. This graveyard was a place where often homeless people, people who were down on their luck, would hang out, and that creates a little bit of a story in the beginning when the bodies are discovered. I think that that was his initial thought, was if I put the, the bodies in the graveyard pose it as an overdose, it would be deemed as this is where someone ha has gone to die, like suicide. Mm. And also, he's had no consequences still. No. There's no one holding him accountable. There's no consequences. This is in this graveyard. I get away with this. Yeah. I've moved from being sad to being angry now, so expect that for the rest of the episode. Okay. Apologies. That's okay. Uh, it's, it is really sad. And you might get sad again because... Jack's sister, Donna, remembers the day the family received the awful news. Mum had called me to say that Jack still wasn't home. And then all of a sudden, a, a police car pulled up outside. And then the next thing, she said that the officers were coming towards our door. And all I've heard is, are you Jack's mum and dad? And obviously they said, yeah. And obviously Jack's dead. And you just heard mum scream. Well, obviously, you know what that scream is. It is the worst news that you could ever receive. Mm. You'd want answers and an explanation. And your siblings of all people, you'd know if something didn't sound right. Like we said earlier, like you know as a family member if something is out of place. And you'd refused to believe what you were being told why would why would he go and have an overdose in a there. graveyard yeah. yeah like something's not adding up here this isn't okay so the sisters Donna and Jen began to question the circumstances surrounding their brother's death we know Jack obviously and Jack's very particular he didn't like dark didn't like it at all first off um second of all Jack wouldn't just walk in a park area, let alone a cemetery or anything like that. You know, he, he wouldn't. And it doesn't make sense to leave the house at like half two in the morning, three o'clock in the morning to go and sit over a park. That doesn't yeah. even make sense. 
Exactly. I mean, mm. so they were determined to find out more. So the Taylor family asked to see the CCTV footage of Jack's last known movement, and it showed him walking with a tall blonde stranger. So we found out two weeks later that they'd seen CCTV footage of Jack meeting a man at Barking Station, which we thought was very bizarre, like very strange. Um, at that time in the morning as well, we just mm. thought, well, who's this man? In October 2015, the police released the images to the public and a few days later, the mysterious man in the footage was identified as Stephen Poor. In the end, it was the determination of Jack Taylor's family to pursue the police that eventually led them to take Port seriously. I believe had that not happened, Port might well have got away or got away with it. On October 15th, Port was arrested on suspicion of murdering all four young men. The police had a serial killer in custody, one that had slipped through their fingers three times they had originally believed that the deaths were all drug overdoses, all happening in the same place. There must have been one person in that department who said, this could be suspicious. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, nah. Yeah. Considering it was the same drug, same place, such a short time, you'd think that something would have... At least enough on. to be... Maybe we should put some CCTV up in this spot where people keep being dead. Yeah, exactly. Detectives searched Stephen's flat. They seized his laptop and mobile phone again, but this time they would actually inspect these items. Finally, they should have done this before the first time they had them, because while browsing Stephen's recent search history, detectives found incriminating evidence. And it is evidence that's hard to hear, he searched for things including the phrase, boy, drug, raped. Right. Mm -hmm. And worse, they also discovered that Stephen's hard drive contained videos of him having sex with unconscious men. Fucking hell. Whilst being questioned, Stephen admitted that he had met his third victim, Daniel Whitworth, at a sex party, but he knew nothing about his death. He also claimed that he hadn't given drugs to anyone and just flat out denied killing the four young men. So on October 18th, 2015, Stephen was arrested and charged with the murders of Anthony Woolgate, Gabriel Kavari, Jack Taylor and Daniel Whitworth. But this was little solace to the victims' families. I was told via the phone, the liaison officer that we had previously, um, he phoned with the opening line of, don't build your hopes up, but we've arrested someone. To try and explain to you how that was, the surreal situation that we were in, also included the emotion of comfort because we thought he wasn't in that dark place. He didn't take his own life. He wasn't angry with any of us. He wasn't upset. He wasn't in this awful place where we couldn't reach him, where he didn't come to us, where he... And for that split second, you're comforted by the fact that your son has been murdered, which is, which is bizarre. It's bizarre. We had a sigh of relief. And that was, that was quickly followed by anger. 
it was just incredible. We didn't know where to go from there. The day I actually got the phone call to say that they'd arrested him for the four murders, I actually, I didn't even feel glad. I felt like I'd been shot, to be quite honest. Straight pain to my chest and I just burst into tears. It was awful. Yeah, couldn't believe it. It's, it's like, there's one thing putting everything together, what me and Jen did, and believing that we are right, that somebody has done something to Jack. But when you're told it, and it becomes official, um, it's, it's, it's awful. It is awful. It's like someone confirming your suspicions and then the reality of the situation really hits home. It wasn't long before the story of the murders hit the headlines. A friend of mine had sent me a link to a news article online um, and I clicked on it and uh, kind of like an, an icy dread sort of went over my body and I sat bolt up upright in bed where it was like local man Stephen Port um, arrested on suspicion of four murders and then I looked through the names and I saw Gabriel being one of them. As the story broke, more men came forward claiming that they too had been drugged and sexually assaulted at Stephen's flat after meeting him online. Do you think that if these people had come forward previously when they were assaulted or attacked, that this could have been prevented. It's easy enough. To, it's easy enough to say that, but I think when you are part of a community that is so often marginalised, mm. you don't report stuff like that to the police. No, you might tell your friends or other people in the community because they are going to be more proactive in looking out for you and keeping you safe. Yeah, than the people that you are supposed to trust with your safety. Exactly. Yeah, like even as a woman, mm. do you not half the time? Well, a who's going to believe me? Mm-hmm. B, I can't prove anything. They're just going to blame me anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, so you might tell you, you might eventually tell a friend. Yeah. Tell your friends. But you quite likely won't tell the police because you don't want to yeah. be dragged through that. It feels like a system that is broken and is also under, it is under-resourced, massively under-resourced, but it is systemically broken. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's easy... I'm a white passing mixed race woman. Mm-hmm. Like it is easy enough for me to say that. Mm-hmm. And I have never been in a situation where my life or my safety has depended on relying on those services, but people around me have been and have been failed. And mm-hmm. I think that's partly why I think this will, this particular story will touch a lot of people in a different way. Mm-hmm. It is different mm-hmm. and it's frustrating and it's difficult to process and uh, actually, that's it. That's all I have to say. When his trial began at the Old Bailey on October 5th, Stephen was faced with 29 separate charges of rape, sexual assault, administering a substance with intent and murder. He pleaded not guilty. This meant the family of the victims would have to face the man responsible for killing their loved ones. And I just can't imagine how that would have felt for them. Mandy Pearson remembers walking into the courtroom. I knew I was going to look at him. Um, He was up there behind glass and he was looking down when we came in. I wanted Stephen Port to give me some eye contact 
that that was a need in me. I, I was just looking for any, any small sign of human emotion from this thing, this thing with two arms and two legs that was apparently human. I wanted something from his eyes. And I never got that. I, I didn't, I didn't get that. For four weeks, the jury was presented with evidence to prove that Stephen was the killer. Investigators had found his DNA on Gabriel's sunglasses and Daniel's Whitworth's clothes. Handwriting experts also confirmed that Daniel didn't write the suicide note found alongside him, as you said. So on November 25th, 2016, the jury convicted Port of a total of 22 offences against 11 men, including the four murders, four rapes, four sexual assaults and 10 counts of administering a substance with intent. Mr Justice Openshaw gave Stephen Port a life sentence. He was immediately sent to Belmarsh Prison. He will never be released. And it will probably never change. Ryan remembers the last time he saw Stephen before leaving the courtroom. So I did my evidence and as I was leaving, I couldn't help but kind of quickly glance at Stephen because I had to walk quite near past him as I, as I was leaving. Um, and chillingly, he kind of gave me a, a crooked half-smile, um, almost like a mischievous grin that a child would give when they've been caught out doing something they know is wrong. And it, it, that was eerie. And that was Stephen Port. Bye, Stephen. Good riddance. Mm. Annoying. That was a pretty brutal one. Yeah, thanks for sticking by with us, guys. Yeah, it's heavy. Needed to be talked about. Yeah. We talked about it. I will say this. I do think it's important that although some of our stories are historical and, like, gruesome, we do need to talk about these issues as well because they're happening. Yeah, but thank you for sticking with us. We got through it. We did get through it. I only cried a bit. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not sorry. No, don't be sorry. Next time on Devils in the Dark, with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We'll be learning about the granny killer, sweet little old lady, Dorothea Puente. And she was not your regular OAP. I've got a feeling I'm going to have a soft spot for her. Love old people. (laughs) Make sure to subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. And we would love it if you could leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We do. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of these themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. 